Okay, um, hello. Um, uh, good afternoon, everybody, and uh, welcome to, to today's talk, which forms part of the Beverage 2.0 Festival, um, which it, uh, itself is part of a whole year's worth of activities here at LSE on rethinking the welfare state for the 21st, 21st century and within a global context. Uh, my name is Martin Reed. I'm the Deputy Director of LSE Library, uh, and I'm chairing this afternoon's talk in place of Professor Mary Evans from the Gender Department, who I'm afraid is unwell today. Sure. Um, I'm very pleased to welcome uh, Professor uh, Derek Fraser to give his talk today, uh, particularly as his work helped to shape our current library exhibition, A Time for Revolutions, Making the Welfare State. Uh, the exhibition traces the history of social welfare in Britain from the poor law onwards, uh, using some of our most treasured collections, including papers from William Beveridge's archive, which we're very proud to hold here at LSE. Um, the exhibition is on in the library gallery, uh, and if you have an opportunity, uh, please do come and visit, uh, if, you, if you can, later today. Um, uh, uh, at the end of the talk, um, we will have some time for questions uh, for Derek. Um, so when that happens, please raise your hand and one of the stewards will come to you with a microphone. Uh, and uh, we'd ask you to keep your questions and comments to the point so that we can get in as many as possible. Uh, for, for those of you who use Twitter, the hashtag for today's event is LSE Beverage. Uh, and I'd ask you uh, also please to turn your phones on to silent uh, so they don't disrupt the event. Uh, I should also inform you that the event is being recorded and will hopefully be available as a pod podcast uh, subject to the smooth functioning of the technology. Um, so, uh, just to, uh, to um, set the scene for, for Derek, um, the, the Beverage Festival is focused on looking at the future of welfare uh, and the ideas uh, shaping what this might look like. Um, but in order to do that, it's very important to... Um, understand and trace the story of welfare uh, back to Beveridge's initial plans and before to provide the context to the system that was created. Um, and there are probably few people who are better placed to do that uh, than Derek Fraser. Derek is Emeritus Professor of History at the University of Teesside, where he served as Vice-Chancellor for 11 years. He was previously Professor of Modern History at the University of Bradford and also Professor of English History at UCLA. His expertise is in modern British and British social and urban history and his comprehensive history of welfare in Britain, the evolution of the British welfare state, had its fifth edition published in September last year. So without uh, any further ado, I'll hand over to Derek and begin. Thank you, Derek. Well, good afternoon, friends. Uh, delighted to see so many here. It just shows the attraction of beverage 75 years on. I'm going to start by a sort of whistle-top tour of social history and social policy because I think some of the euphoria around beverage and certainly some of the comments made in subsequent periods uh, imply, I'm not sure they mean to imply, but they sometimes imply that nothing existed before beverage. That somehow or other beverage pulled something out like a rabbit out of the hat and uh, we never had anything before beverage, and suddenly there was this thing called the welfare state based on the beverage report. So I want to say a few words, a short introduction, uh, about what existed before, and I just feel that some of my historian colleagues who adopt the term welfare state 
and then apply it to previous periods are a bit anachronistic, so some talk about the old poor law being a welfare state in miniature, and uh, phrases such as that, even though they put it in, in lowercase and quotation marks, I still think we really need to focus the welfare state uh, on the mid-20th century, very much of its time. And therefore, I think we're being somewhat anachronistic if we seek to identify welfare states in previous periods. So if the technology works, yes, it does. So, of course, there was no welfare state in Victorian England, but, of course, there was a great deal of poverty. And the answer to, for the Victorians uh, was the very much hated poor law, not the poor law of Elizabeth, the 43rd of Elizabeth, but the poor law of 1834, the new poor law, as we call it. And it had these two compelling features. One was the principle of less eligibility. We don't use that terminology now, but I'm sure you recognize the condition. It was believed, and the historians still argue about whether it was true, but it was believed the poor law had become over-generous, and therefore, in the wonderful phrase in the poor law report, people were under the strongest inducement to quit the class of independent labourer and join the class of pauper. And so to those intellectuals behind the uh, new poor law, they said, well, you just reverse the syllogism. If the condition of the pauper is always less eligible than the condition of the independent labourer, then the reverse motivation comes in. And so we had in the new poor law the principle of less eligibility and the application of less eligibility was the workhouse test that all paupers would have to go into a workhouse, in Chadwick's phrase, a well-regulated workhouse. And here you see, if it looks like a prison, you won't be wrong because they were called Bastilles. But the different areas for different types of pauper, the central, sort of very Benthamite, uh, the central agency, where a central building where all could be observed. And so there were about 500 of these, not always on this design, built in the... Uh, first two decades of the new poor law and of course the poor law had through the workhouse test an important long-term psychological impact on the British people. The fear of the workhouse was really profound across the whole of the uh, working class for, for over a hundred years. Long after we didn't have any workhouse anymore people would talk about we'll all be in the workhouse. My own grandmother who was born in the last decades of Victoria's period, whenever she saw, and lived into well into the 90s, whenever she saw any evidence of family extravagance, she said, we can't behave like this, we'll all be in the workhouse. And I can tell you, I, I come from Leeds, the great hospital, St James's in Leeds, which in the 1960s was the largest general hospital in Europe, consultants I know tell me that as late as the 60s and 70s, Many lead citizens refused to be, accept medical appointments at St. James's because it was the site of Lee's workhouse. And if you go there now, you see a wonderful building, uh, which is now a museum, the Thackeray Museum. And so this hostility uh, to, the, to uh, this fear of the workhouse had a profound impact on, uh, on ordinary people. Now, of course, today is not the time to go into this, but there is a problem about the workhouse. I mean, here you see the serigraph. This is 1900, quite a well-known picture. Women, of course, separated from men. But one of the oddities about the workhouse, one of the paradoxes that social historians 
explore, first statistically, and I quote the average, only one in six paupers ever saw the inside of the workhouse. So outdoor relief continued, notwithstanding the purge first in the 1830s and then again in the 1870s, the so-called crusade against outdoor relief. Uh, and of course, the oddity is that many services were provided for those who were in the workhouse that were not available to people outside, such as medical services. Indeed, there's quite a strong case for saying one of the origins of the British Railway State lies in the poor or medical services, and many of the buildings were inher inherited by the welfare state, and many of the services led to services that were eventually provided under different uh, conditions. So here's a, a parallel picture. Uh, it was regimented, but all these people are reasonably well-dressed. They're fed, though they had to eat in silence. And so this was a, not a very pleasant place to be. We debate about how cruel uh, the poor law was. Well, institutions are not pleasant places to be in, either then or now. Um, uh, gradually, this punitive poor law, which was aimed to deter people from applying, was gradually overtaken by an alternative system of social welfare. And uh, the whole history, really, of social policy in the 19th and 20th centuries is the story of withdrawing social conditions from poor law uh, responsibility and providing the same services or similar services but under more socially acceptable conditions. And so we have the famous pair of Lloyd George here. Uh, Lloyd George on the left, young Winston Churchill on the right, who at that time was a part of a, a radical liberal. And they were profoundly influenced by a statistic <coughs> which emerged from the work of Booth and Roundtree on the mention of poverty, that around about 1900, or in the early 1900s, roughly speaking, 3% of the population were in receipt of poor relief, but 30% about were in poverty. So clearly the poor law was not catering uh, for the full range of poverty, and so they introduced a whole range of liberal government before the First World War, a whole range of things, uh, school meals, school medical inspection, old age pensions, non-contributory old age pensions, and a very important thing that I don't think historians have paid enough attention to, where were they paid? They should have been paid through the poor law in one sense. I mean, the poor law was ubiquitous. It was every area of the land. So the obvious place to go and collect your pension would have been the, the workhouse, the poor law offices, the guardian's offices. But Lloyd George himself, from a a very humble background, was aware of the hostility of people to the poor law, and so the, the, the pension, the non-contributory pension, was paid through the post office, which is a sort of value-free institution, no stigma in going to collect your pension from the post office. And of course, most important, uh, the national insurance for health was up to an income limit for unemployment uh, with industries that were uh, particularly affected. This is the famous ninepence for fourpence, the redistributional. You paid in fourpence, but you've got benefits worth ninepence. And uh, again, I don't have time today to debate this, but we do have a debate, those of us who write about these things, about whether this sort of made a sort of welfare, a kind of welfare state inevitable. I don't think so. But it was definitely a turning point, because clearly this is a whole new a service that the government was putting 
providing for ordinary people and of course very important as we'll see later that the insurance principle, the contributing insurance principle became a very central part of the, of the call law and when the funding needed, the, the uh, people's budget as it was called was needed to pay for the pensions because they cost more than anticipated, there was more poverty that as Lloyd George said refused to wear the badge of pauperism uh, so a budget was refused and then we have the constitutional crisis and here's a poster uh, from uh, 1910 uh, showing that the, one of the campaigns of Lloyd George was the social policy of health insurance. Now as you know Lloyd George then became Prime Minister, moved away from social policy uh, in 1916 and of course made a very fateful promise towards the end of the war and this was going to be important as I'll show allegedly in the lecture. He promised homes fit for heroes. Uh, not only physical, but if you go around our towns of England, you'll see some council houses that are very splendid, very large, very well apportioned, very well built. That didn't last very long. But he, of course, he didn't just mean physical homes for heroes. He meant a whole society in which heroes could be uh, welcomed back. But of course, what happened was quite different. Yesterday, the trilogies. Uh, today the unemployed. So unemployment at a million between 1920 and 1940, uh, a story of differential experience of unemployment very high up to 70% in some north, northern towns, the classic industrial in, in, industries of the Industrial Revolution, engineering, shipbuilding, textiles, all in trouble, the southeast of England actually making progress. And so it was a very differential experience of people, of course, who were unemployed, standing on street corners, and a different set of people who managed to stay in work during that period and saw their standards of living uh, rise. And this is a very famous picture, as many of you have seen before, that just illustrates the division of Britain in the 1930s, the uh, schoolboys going to Eton or similar, and the ordinary chaps looking at them. And so that was the, an image of a divided society. So on the eve of war, Britain did have what some historians call a social service state. There was unemployment insurance. There was health insurance. The local authorities now administered something called public assistance. There was something to replace the hatred for the poor law, which was the family means test, which was very draconian and led to many people having to give up amenities such as a family piano had to be taken away and sold in order to pay for benefits. So there was something there, there were, but there were many anomalies in this welfare system that existed in 1939. And that's where uh, Beveridge uh, comes in. So a couple of pictures there as a young man and then the image that we have I think used very similar uh, to the, uh, uh, the publicity for this week. Now here's a brief outline, he was the son of a, an Indian civil servant and judge, child of the Raj, uh, went to Charterhouse, went to Oxford, did very well, like many, like Attlee, who he was later to deal, uh, to actually implement his policies, went to the East End of London, wrote a very important book, 1909, Unemployment a Problem in Industry, and of course this concept of unemployment as a, an economic condition rather than the result of personal failings. Very important a concept that recommended labour exchanges. He went in, he was invited by Churchill 
to administer the labor change and later stayed on as uh, administering the unemployment insurance. Of course, you know here, he was a civil servant then during the war, came here for many years, 18 years, as director of the LSE, and as we've heard, the papers, his papers are here, went to Oxford, 1937, uh, came into government uh, war service, as so many did, around 1940. Missing from this little brief review, I should have put in 1944, he was briefly an MP, MP for Pericon Tweed, and uh, that he gave up being master then, they asked him to resign. And uh, of course, a famous beverage report, and finished up as Baron uh, Beveridge, and leader of the Liberals in the House of Lords. Now, when he came into government, he came into the uh, Ministry of Labour, and of course, he was um, a, an expert on manpower. And like I mean, some others, like Lord Rees, is another example of someone who felt they had more to offer than the government was actually giving them opportunities to express. And so uh, he was very frustrated in his uh, time in Ministry of Labour, and uh, as I think has been made clear, he, he didn't always get on so well uh, with his peers, he certainly fell out uh, with Sir Thomas Phillips as the Permanent Secretary, uh, fell out with Bevin, very critical of Bevin, said Bevin had not, uh, for instance, in his autobiography, said Bevin was too slow to accept direction of labour and wage control. Uh, what was needed during the war. So he generally made himself a, a bit of a nuisance, and of course he was well connected with the press, and so he would leak some of this to the press. I am going to show you quite a lot of cartoons, and I think cartoons sometimes capture an essential point that is very visual and very immediate. And so here's my first cartoon, and this is a beverage here, probably can't quite see because of the lights on it, uh, Manpower Report, and here's a Colonel Blimp figure, putting round square pegs into round holes. And here it says, an economist reporting, sir, an economist put him on sanitary duty at once. And so this is the idea of Beveridge being very frustrated in his role, not being given the uh, authority and influence that he felt he could give in terms of uh, manpower planning. And uh, Bevin really didn't like him, and Bevin wanted to really be rid of him. And it was happened that uh, Arthur Greenwood, who had this idea of a committee that was going to look into social insurance, growing out of a, report, of a committee that had previously looked at workmen's compensation, and uh, more or less, Greenwood said to Bevin, I tell you what, if you want to be rid of Beveridge, put him in charge of this committee. You'll never hear of him again. If we put him in a, a side, uh, shunt him into the... Uh, sidings and, and beverage uh, will that they will take values out of your hair. And uh, the price Bevin had to pay for agreeing to this committee, because he wasn't all that keen on it, uh, was that Beveridge would become the chairman of this committee and uh, would uh, therefore be out of, out, of, out of his way. And it is reported that Beveridge was very distraught, tears in his eyes, he said when he was told that he would have to leave manpower planning where he thought he had his main expertise and go into this uh, report, on, to do this report on social insurance. And he was, he was in no doubt because he was being kicked upstairs. It was a kick in the teeth uh, for him to have to go and do this work whereas his main work was, uh, would be in another area. Now actually, this was quite a propitious time for him to uh, think about the future. 
this is the front cover of uh, Picture Post. You won't be able to see the date, but it's actually January 1941. And here's a whole edition of Picture Post. I, I have a copy of the original edition, page after page of what sort of society we wish to create after the war. 1941. When there were virtually no good news in the war, who knew whether Britain would even survive? And yet people were planning for the future. In the early years of war, the idea of reconstruction, uh, this was in the air. So in a way, it was a good time for Beveridge to take over this committee. And actually, he did begin to see the potential of uh, doing something really important with this minor technical committee that was supposed to look at the anomalies in the social insurance scheme. We find it quite difficult to explain why should it be that people who were on the brink of possible military defeats yet devoted so much time to thinking about the war, uh, after the society after the war. Well, there was this notion that this is a total war, everybody was involved, and therefore as Labour ministers went into the government, made it very clear that Churchill would have to look after the domestic area as well as the foreign policy and military area. Uh, there was a question of morale, how did you keep morale up, or one of the ways of saying, well, things are going to be better in the future. There was a very radicalizing effect of war itself, in terms of opinion moving very rapidly. McKibben makes a very powerful case for saying this radicalism was very early in the war, as early as the summer of 1940, Norwegian disaster, Dunkirk, we've all seen the film, of course turned into a great moral victory, but actually a sign of military weakness. And uh, there was the notion that the old guard had lost the credibility uh, to rule. And therefore, from very early in this war, people were thinking about, we're not going back to what we had before. Remember the slogan at the First World War was, business as usual, after the end of the First World War. Nobody wanted that. And so this was a time when people were thinking about, well, surely, what are we fighting for? We must be fighting uh, for an improved society. And so it was quite propitious, and fairly soon, uh, Beveridge, here he is about this time, uh, began to see the possibilities. And uh, I read my notes from my glasses on to read my, the, his very first paper uh, to the committee uh, talks about how could social insurance create a better new world after the war. Now there was nothing in the terms of reference that said this. This was a small technical inquiry. Bevin said this, it's not a policy committee, it's a technical committee. And there were seven government departments that paid out benefits of various sorts, four other important government departments. So 11 government departments on the committee, middle ranking civil servants, and he was to be the chair. But as soon as he got into it, in the first few months he was still working on uh, skilled, skilled, uh, for skilled, skilled employees in the forces, and then he was involved in a petrol rationing scheme. And so when he came round to uh, doing something, which was in December of 41, he wrote two papers, dramatic papers, I quote them in, in, in the appendices of my book. Uh, one in December 41, more or less what we're going to see as the assumptions in the welfare state, uh, sorry, in the beverage report, 
and then a further one in January 41, uh, January 42, when he said, I now believe we can eradicate poverty. Now all this alarmed civil servants. They went back to their ministries and said, you know, Beveridge is going to say something pretty dramatic here, way outside what he's supposed to be doing. All he was supposed to report on were the technical problems, the duplications, the overlapping. Could it be more rational, the system that we had in place? And so they came back and said, okay, we're going to change. It's not going to be a government report. It's going to be a personal report of William Beveridge. And exactly the same thing, thing happened 100 years before, with the great Edwin Chadwick report on public health, where again the government of the day was worried about the things Chadwick might be saying, and so they said, right, that public health report is Chadwick's report, not the Parliamentary Commission, it was that originally intended. And so this was to be the personal report of uh, Beveridge, and uh, this would be... Um, only the civil servants would be there merely as advisors, particularly technical advisors, who would, uh, who would advise him about the policy. But I think it's been made clear that if you look at the two big documents he wrote in the winter of 41-2, more or less all the elements of the beverage report are to be found there. Now what's in it? Why is it so important? Why do people think so much about why are we still here today, 75 years later, talking about it? Well, I think there are, first of all, if, if you actually look, it's about 300 pages. I would say something like 90% of it is highly technical, highly detailed, detailed planning of how a social insurance scheme would work. But there are elements, what you might call popular elements, with beverage dramatically made to integrate into this technical document that were very accessible to ordinary people. And the first bit I want to talk about are the three assumptions. Now I think in some ways this is almost more important than the content because he was saying that no decent scheme of social security can possibly work unless the pre these three prerequisites are in place. And they're as follows. Full employment, NHS, and child allowances. They're actually been reversed. The employment was actually assumption C. Now, none of these was wholly radical, and he wasn't certainly talking about when he said an it was an NHS, not necessarily the NHS that we eventually got, but he was arguing that all three would make it possible to have a social insurance scheme. And although... Um, People had talked about these things, indeed planned, and much, many plans already in place. The emergency medical service of the war years was the basis on which further discussion uh, took place, and there'd been a 20-year campaign, uh, Family Endowment Society campaigning for child allowances. This would be relieve industry of a problem, but it also reflected many of the social surveys that showed that the size of family was an important uh, factor because wages didn't, didn't, weren't dependent on the size of family. So it was a, a family, a working person with a large family uh, would have problems. And so child allowances had been debated and talked about. So these are not wholly new. Full employment, of course, is very dramatically new in one sense because there had been three million unemployed in the 30s. There had been a government that fell in 1931, as a result of having to cut the dole by 
So unemployment had been very high, but he had come to the view that it was possible now uh, to actually maintain a policy of full employment. And so I think this is almost uh, as important as the rest of the report, because there's very little explaining how these are going to be delivered. I mean, they're there, they are discussed, but they're not discussed at any uh, great length. But he's saying any reasonable post-war government will put these three things in place, and irrespective of the party, and it will be very important that they are in place. I'm assuming this is a brilliant concept of assumptions. But of course, most uh, important uh, were the five giants, which we've seen in the program for this, for this week. It comes up again and again. And uh, this is not wholly new. I mean, he does refer to the Atlantic Charter. Uh, Roosevelt had sort of not used all these giants, but Roosevelt had talked about freedom from one. But what Beveridge was saying, as a good historian as he was, a very great believer in, in the liberty of the individual, but much of the history of English liberty was about the freedom to. So the freedom to vote, it took a long time to get the vote. And the freedom to speak, so we have a free press, free of censorship. Freedom of worship, so you worship the God you believe in. He said that was fine, but what we now need is the freedom from. And remember the five giants, freedom from the famous five giants that a proper system of social insurance would be part of that, and of course this is shot through the uh, terms of reference. Terms of reference didn't allow him to say all this, but what he was saying was, I'm going to deal with what, uh, but actually a proper overarching social structure, a social policy system, social economic system, would deal with all of these, uh, all of these five. And this famous um, cartoon, of there are the five giants, and little beverage is dealing with them. And, uh, uh, and that, of course, is the image that, uh, that has, has uh, captured our imagination ever since. And I think just in passing, I've never quite got to the bottom of this. If you think about beverage's career, uh, which is a fairly sort of elitist, working, moving in a fairly narrow circle, writing abstruse <laughs> books about the history of prices or a detailed uh, analysis of social and economic insurance and so on, and manpower planning. And yet he managed to capture in this image something that was accessible to us all. We could all understand this. And so I think it is very important that the style of uh, the language used was, that was important as well as, as the content. So what's, uh, what's then, what, what else is it? Well, here are the six principles. I put the first two together. This, of course, has been uh, subject to quite a lot of debate. Uh, he was a great believer in the power of contributing insurance, and obviously it goes back to 1911, but he felt this was important in terms of contract. What he didn't like was the whole selective, moralizing, means-testing uh, argument of selective benefits. As soon as you suggest that benefits shall be paid out of taxation, without any sense of entitlement, which, of course, you could argue, and there is a case, uh, then, of course, you come into subjective judgments about what, you know, what should people have in terms of their, uh, of their income. And the committee hardly discussed any sort of taxation-based system. I mean, they very early on more or less focused that it would be 
on the basis of contributory insurance. And what Beveridge thought was really important, and here again, he had a sense of what ordinary people felt. They disliked the uh, poor law approach of dividing people into deserving and undeserving uh, poor. Uh, he, he didn't use this phrase, but something that actually Churchill said before the First World War. You've got to put the mathematics in and take the morality out. So if you paid for your insurance, you are entitled to draw the benefits. And this was not just income generation. I mean, there are many people who argued this was a very clever ploy. I mean, those on the left said you're making the poor pay for their own welfare by, t by taxing them. Keynes called it a poll tax, that you're taxing people uh, to pay for their own welfare rather than funding it out of uh, taxation, which was, is progressive, so the wealthier pay more. He very much believed in flat rate, that everybody be treated the same. So he said, I don't think it'd be right for my neighbour to pay more than I do or even get more benefit if he'd had to be on a higher wage previously. So the richer uh, workers were not entitled to better benefits and better pensions simply by virtue of their, uh, their income. And so he believed in this flat rate principle on both sides. Everybody pays the same in, everybody draws the same out. And of course that does express that sort of social solidarity of the war years that people felt was fair. Fair shares for all was a sort of approach, uh, and he echoed that. Of course, this has been one of the things that people have argued about. The problem using the wartime language of the flat rate principle is what uh, we call the convoy principle. The speed of the convoy is the speed of the slowest ship. And so if you are going to have a proper actuarial scheme in which benefits were paid out of a fund into which people had already paid, then of course the level of contributions would have to be set as low as possible that the lowest, lowest, worker, lowest paid worker could afford. So, you, so the argument that as people have used against this is that this limits the benefits you can pay because you're limiting uh, the contributions. Uh, he had no time for the different schemes that had operated previously. He wanted to bring all into one scheme. And then, of course, this very important principle of adequate benefits. The benefits would have to be at subsistence level. Now, again, beverage has been criticised. I mean, this is, has been called the sort of Achilles heel of the whole beverage report. Um, because what is an adequate benefit? <coughs> it's unfair, I think, to argue that though this was a fairly austere standard um, and uh, it was later called the child of austerity and nevertheless Beveridge did accept that things had moved on from what Roundtree called uh, the maintenance of physical efficiency. So in previous generations they thought of a poverty line as what's the minimum you need actually to survive. He accepted what he called a human need standard. And as you know, since then, we've debated this endlessly. Now, as the standard of living of the whole society moves up, and it has usually moved up, so the poverty line moves up. And it was Nassau Senior, a famous classical economist in the 19th century, said the luxuries of one age become the necessities of the next. 
And so in our own time, uh, where in my childhood, I can remember when we got our first television, not till the late 50s, early 60s, I can remember when we got our first refrigerator. And yet nobody would today say having a television or a refrigerator uh, is, a, is, is, a, is, is a luxury. And so we have had this d debate over time as to about what is the poverty line. And if you say, as I think is often said now, that it's a statistical concept, so you say, all right, anyone who's on, let's say, less than 60, two-thirds of the, of the average wage is in poverty. Well, you're always going to have poverty, aren't you? Because statistically, there are always going to be some people on, on, on lower incomes. And if you try to go to a, a sort of, uh, some sort of basket, as we do with the cost of living, so what should the poor person have in the basket? Uh, see those letters in the Daily Telegraph complaining about how many people on benefits have got sky dishes on their council houses. Well, Beveridge would say, well, they're choosing to spend their income. One of the ways, one of the freedoms you have as a citizen is to spend your income as you feel important, according to your needs. And so it's very difficult to think of what is an objective, acceptable poverty line uh, for, the, for the payment of so-called adequate benefits. And later on, uh, I saw this at first hand in Teesside, because one of our local MPs, of course, was Tony Blair. And Tony Blair, you remember, talked about social exclusion. It wasn't just a matter of money. It was whether you could participate in the norms of your society. So in today, it would be whether you've got a computer. You might have enough income to survive, but if you're outside the norms of say, information gathering, you might be deemed to be in poverty. Now, I'm not saying Beveridge understood all of that, but he certainly accepted that there had to be something more than uh, mere physical efficiency, as it was called. So you'd have to work out, yes, what did people need to live, but then to live in a society, to, so that you could be <coughs> participant in that society, and that would make things uh, very difficult. But the main problem beverage had, not without wanting to try and solve it, was the problem of rent. In the basket that you put in of what would be an adequate benefit, there would have to be an element for rent. I mean, the beverage, like others, could never have dreamed of the mass growth of owner-occupation, uh, reversed now, of course, but dramatically since the Second World War, uh, owner-occupation soared. But of course, we're back to perhaps the rental market again now, but most workers would live in rented accommodation. You won't be surprised to hear that rents vary enormously across the country, Scotland, perhaps the lowest, obviously London, the highest. And so it was very difficult to uh, find a figure that would suit everybody. And so Beverly said, in the end, we've got to go for a, an average. And if there were people who were really disadvantaged, well, he had his national assistance a safety net to cope with that, and uh, he didn't think the, the way we've gone since of housing benefit, separately paying for rent would be a good idea, and it would, of course, if you like, institutionalise differential uh, standards of living, because people in Scotland would get less, and people in London would get more. And again, it smacked of judgments, subjective judgments about what rent should be. So in the end, he went for a standard 10 shillings a week rental, and that would be 
uh, the level at which benefits would be paid. And of course the challenge was that benefits should be as possible that people could survive, it was high as it could be managed. But actually what often is forgotten, and not because Beveridge didn't say it many times, it had to be low enough to encourage voluntary thrift. Again and again, and again I think this is forgotten in a lot of the rhetoric, Beveridge said, I'm catering for a national minimum. Of, like the good liberal, they brought in liberal, that he was, had many other ideas of course, but he believed that it was the, per, the responsibility and indeed the opportunity for an individual to prepare, uh, to prepare for himself above the minimum. Then he wanted comprehensive, he wanted to cover all risks and all persons, uh, and then he believed, of course, not everybody would be treated the same because there would be different classifications of insurance uh, category. So those are the six principles on which the, the, the report was based. And, of course, it had great attraction. Uh, if I just identify um, some of the key features. First of all, bringing everybody in was very, very important. My friend and colleague, uh, Professor Alan Deacon, uh, wrote a very important book which is called Reserve for the Poor. In other words, in the 1930s, social services were essentially for the poor. So the back-coated worker, the higher-level worker, uh, the middle classes, the professionals, were all outside of this. But Beveridge said these are all part of the social risk basket, and therefore everybody uh, should be in. Brilliant concept, cradle to grave, which people picked on, you know, it starts with maternity grants, then it goes to child benefit, and then unemployment insurance, health insurance, widowhood, uh, old age pension, and, and a death, a funeral grant. And all this for one single payment, which was a very attractive proposition. That all the, what I think he's saying is these are normal risks of a normal life. We will all experience them, and therefore it's appropriate they should be included in the, in the scheme. And this notion that everybody would be the same. I know social scientists have argued and probably continue to argue that flat rate benefits are not workable. You know, they don't deliver what you want. But I think there was a very important psychological advantage, which echoed with wartime social solidarity, that everybody should be treated the same. And I think that was very important. And of course, nothing captured better than the beverage report, the aspirations for a better post-war world. And uh, there are other things people expected from the post-war, but somehow or other, this was a test case, the litmus test. <coughs> How serious was a uh, future government going to be in terms of creating new society? All hinged on whether they would implement the beverage report. And so there was enormous enthusiasm when the report came out. And here he took the, uh, they don't talk about Prince and Pauper, they talk about everyone treats the same Duke to Dustman. Everybody would uh, benefit, enormously enthusiastic response. Uh, people queued at the stationery office on the morning, 1st of December, when it was published, 1942. Uh, I think 73,000 copies sold by lunchtime, reprinted many times, altogether sold about 650,000 uh, copies. The best-selling white paper until Christine Keeler. Uh, <laughs> the Denning report on the Profumo affair sold more, but that's the only one. 
And so a dramatic and, and widespread response. And uh, initially, uh, there was some talk, it might be buried, you know, published quietly, but Brendan Bracken, Ministry of Information, argued, no, this would be good for morale. And so Beveridge was on Gazette. He was on uh, Pathy Gazette. He was on the newsreels. He was on the BBC. gave an interview uh, with the Daily Telegraph in which he said the report was halfway to Moscow. It was alarmed some people. Uh, and he was invited to meet the king. He was invited to America. Went on a tour in, in, on the Queen Mary uh, to America. Gave many speeches in America. I think 50,000 copies of an American edition, so uh, an enormously positive response. And of course, about this time, his personal lecture, this is at University College Art, where they had American troops ability, and this, of course, is his uh, Jesse, later called Janet Beveridge. Um, and again, I don't have time to go into it, but he had what you might call a rather unusual personal life, a sort of menage a trois with his cousin, uh, David Mayer, and this is the widow of David Mayer, that he eventually married. And uh, so, uh, two weeks after the Beveridge Report came out, there was this really would be almost like a society marriage. And Janet Beveridge, in her uh, book on this, says that uh, a few days after uh, the publication, uh, the wedding, a few days after the wedding, she was in a taxi cab and the taxi driver said to her, Aren't you the woman who married the Beveridge Report? <laughs> so, this new, very important. Uh, time of his life, and he became a sort of popular hero. Here they all want his autograph, and uh, uh, he, I think he never anticipated this personal popularity. It was amazing, the early opinion polls, mass observation, found that within, I think it was three weeks, 90% of the population had heard of the beverage report. Imagine, uh, even with all our social media and so on, anything published today, which 90% of people had heard of it, be dramatic, and we have much more uh, means of communication than existed at the time. And so here are the cartoons of Beveridge, a rather avuncular man. I mean, uh, odd, if you see the uh, interview on Pathy, he comes over with these very clipped Oxford English and uh, hardly your image of a popular hero, but he had this avuncular image. Here was a, a fine man who was giving a solution to our social problems. Uh, the new world, this was the, uh, here we have the ruins of the old economy, the, the new society, and Beveridge was the architect. And even, of course, what were the troops fighting for? Well, here was Beveridge uh, that would uh, encourage the troops with their morale would be improved. And uh, um, a, a, a phrase, Beveridge now, was on everybody's lips. And indeed, Beveridge himself helped to set up something called Social Security League, uh, to promote beverage now. So I just pause there, because in time of war, here were these people fighting a total war, and here was a report, a government report, but actually in his personal name, that somehow captured everybody's aspirations. And in the mass observation returns, comments people make, they think this is wonderful, but they're also skeptical about whether uh, the a government will actually do anything about it. And of course they were right to be suspicious. So the next cartoon is slightly, uh, sorry, wrong one. Uh, here it is, yeah. Um, can't quite see it in, but it hasn't come quite. This is a, a barrel of dynamite, and here are the five giants on the pop of dynamite, and here's the, the fuse ready to be lit, 
and here's Churchill and he's turned his back on the, he refuses to light the, uh, uh, the, the dynamite. Now why will the government so lukewarm on beverage given this enormous enthusiasm of the populace? Well I think there are three reasons and I think the second, the middle one is the most important. The first reason is partly personal but also proprietorial. It was felt that beverage had behaved improperly. He didn't just leak elements of the poll, he talked about it openly. Why were people queuing at the stationary office on the 1st of December? Because he had led them to believe there was something really important uh, to be published. And ministers were not happy, but also civil servants were not happy. That they thought he was trying to bounce them into commitments that they hadn't thought yet thought through. And indeed, I think he's right to say beverage now was never a realistic possibility. It was never possible to simply translate the beverage report instantly into a socialist scheme. I mean, just take one example. Round figures, 35 million people, everyone had to have an insurance number. Well, how do you just think of that, that everybody's going to be given a national insurance number before computers, uh, by hand, allocated. So there are an enormous number of issues to resolve. And so I think there's some element that says, yes, it's a great report, it's got some great ideas, but we really need time to think about it, and we don't want to be bounced by beverage. And there was a personal antipathy, I don't need to get away from this, that Churchill didn't mind the cult of personality where he was concerned, but he didn't quite take too kindly that somebody like Beveridge, who he'd really rather fallen out with by then, uh, would have be the second most popular man in England. And so there was a bit of personal antipathy, but nevertheless, I think there was a sense. Beveridge wasn't a full civil servant, but he was in the civil service, and it was not the right way to behave, uh, to uh, behave, to, to do all this uh, pre-publication, which would uh, lead to uh, the government feeling obliged to accept. The second reason, which I think is the most important, <coughs> is, and Churchill talks about this, he said, Homes Fit for Heroes was a great betrayal after the First World War. I don't want to give something, I don't want to make promises where I genuinely don't believe they'll be delivered. And there were plenty of civil servants to advise that actually beverage was utopian. Yes, there were good elements in it and it could be the basis of a social insurance scheme, but there was no way it was deliverable and therefore you're holding out a hostage to fortune, you're expecting people to put up with the privations of war and almost foisting on them an objective and aspiration that wouldn't be fulfilled. And so it's rather strange that this is a coalition government. Attlee was Deputy Prime Minister, Bevin was one of his most powerful ministers, Morrison was put in charge of uh, taking the beverage report forward. They all agreed with the government line which was you'd have to plan, you'd have to think it through. And yet somehow, Labour got identified as being the party of beverage that we um, particularly associated with the famous debate in 1940, February 1943. The government gave a very lukewarm response and 60 or 70, I think it was, it could have been 80, uh, Labour MPs voted against the government. Now all party politics were suspended during the war, but nevertheless this gave the impression uh, that uh, Labour was the party uh, for the welfare, uh, for, for beverage. So some more cartoons, here's this famous one of 
beverages coming, so they all go into the air raid shelter. And a lovely one, one of my favourites, the good ship If and When, and here's uh, Ward Kingsley Ward throwing over the steering wheel of the Ministry of uh, Social Security. And also a marvellous one, this is the British people, a strapping person, six foot, sorry, go back again. Uh, here's the, the waiting for his suit of clothes, here's beverage, and here's the Chancellor cutting down the trousers. Uh, and of course, Kingsley Wood gave a particularly weak speech in the debate, and this has made very clear uh, that the government was unlikely to respond uh, to beverage. Uh, and even Morrison, who was actually personally in favour of at least doing something, even he uh, was found wanting it come away in my hand and see all the other reports gathering dust, uh, cobwebs, Othwath, and so on. This is about industrial relocation and all of that. So uh, the whole response of government was more or less to say, not necessarily no, but to say not now. But there will be other demands on the post-war budget, reconstruction and so on, and uh, who knows where we'll be after the war. When would the war end? We didn't know. I mean, this is contributed to that euphoria that flows from Alamein. November was Alamein, December beverage. But of course, the end of the war, we now know, was at least three years away, but they probably thought at the time they could see no end to the war. So what would society be like? What would the a government situation be like after the war? Uh, very difficult to judge. And so here, the, also famous one of his favorites, here's Beveridge going in with all his reports, Stafford Cripps coming out, and there's Beveridge with a copy of that same uh, cartoon. Now, Beveridge hoped that he would be asked to follow up particularly Assumption C, which was full employment. And uh, he thought, well, of course, I just said it. How would it be achieved? And therefore, he confidently, initially, anyway, thought that he would be invited back to do a report on full employment. But of course, no invitation ever came. And so he did do a report on full employment, uh, but it was uh, privately sponsored, set up a committee privately, and then there was a sort of race. Who could get their report out first? The government was producing a, uh, a white paper, the famous white paper chase, of 1944, all the plans for the post-war world. And uh, I've seen a very interesting little squiggle on the draft of the, uh, of the government white paper when Churchill was at sea in the Atlantic, some meeting with Roosevelt or whoever, and uh, they sent him a draft copy of the, of the white paper on employment, it wasn't called full employment, it was called employment. And some rather innocent civil servant had put in a, a note, what shall we say, how is, or something like, how does this relate to the beverage report? And there you see Churchill has scribbled on, what has beverage got to do with our report? He was totally out of the equation. He played no part whatsoever in the planning uh, for the future. And so they rushed out their report, but beverage, of course, uh, did produce his report, and the uh, famous cartoon, Remember that cartoon, My Goodness, My Guinness? And so here's a cartoon, My Goodness, My Beverage. So this is an alternative view uh, from the government's uh, view of uh, employment. And it is strange that here was this expert on social policy that was not consulted in any way. He talks about being boycotted. 
in his autobiography, totally out of the loop, as we'd say now, and uh, so he was outside and paid no part in the plan. So what actually happened? Well, there is his full employment. Uh, there he is about this time. And of course, the very surprising, again, we could have a whole lecture on this, why did Churchill lose uh, the uh, 45 election? Well, of course, one of the reasons, not the only reason, was Labour was seen to be the party of beverage, perhaps not wholly fairly, uh, but nevertheless he was, and so it was the uh, much less flamboyant Attlee who became Prime Minister and so introduced the basic elements of the uh, welfare state as, as we know it. And uh, National Insurance Act, very much modelled on beverage, National Health Services Act, National Citizen Act, finally abolished the poor law. And the 5th of July, we historians love to debate about dates. When was the French Revolution? You know, well, it wasn't necessarily 1789, it was 1792. When was the English Revolution? Well, it could have been uh, 1642, but it could have been later. But we know, we can be precise, the British welfare state began on the 5th of July, 1948, broadly in the beverage mode. I mean, it wasn't, I got, I got a question mark on the title of today's talk, it wasn't really a blueprint in the sense that somebody could take a blueprint and manufacture an article based entirely on it. I think the terminology we use now would be roadmap. He gave a roadmap of how things ought to be. A lot of detail work still need to be done, but of course with the five giants also uh, the idea of a broader social policy addressing uh, many other things as well. And this is a lovely document the government produced and you couldn't argue with that, could you? This day makes history. And it was true, even those on the left who didn't like the insurance-based system, nevertheless acknowledged that the 5th of July marked a day when vast numbers of people uh, had new social security, as it was called, a health service, cradle-to-the-grave welfare benefits in a way that they would not had before. And here's a nice government little poster that came out about 1950, in which, as you see, up here are all the, uh, the grumbles that people might say and some of the prejudice of some of the middle classes, and here's what the government was doing to address uh, the five giants. Now, when Churchill won the 51 election, there were many fears that he might reverse the basic elements of the welfare state. He might change the health service, for instance, which, you remember, the Conservatives voted against the 1946 National Health Service Act. But of course, uh, they didn't. The welfare state became, in the 50s, an all-party agreement. This is a famous uh, butskillism. And here we have Labour and uh, Conservative politicians. Let's see if you can see. We've got Cripps and Gateskull and Butler and Macmillan and Thornycroft. They're all in the same suit of clothes. The welfare state is sacred. You can't do anything about it. It's there. What British people want, you won't be able to touch it. But by the 60s, Harold Wilson's beginning to say, well, our worldwide responsibilities are uh, actually rather great. We've got BAOR, we've got East of Suez, and the welfare state may be crumbling. And a strange thing has happened, that as our nostalgia for the Beckham's report has sort of grown over time, almost like an age of innocence, when things were more straightforward than they are now, and as successive governments, it's happened at least five times, have said, let's get back to beverage. <coughs> happens every sort of ten years or so. Uh, 
let's get back to beverage. So while beverage's reputation and sense in the popular mind, and possibly amongst politicians, has grown, academics have been all I can say, what I would call a debunking. Just give you a few quotations, many of them, of course, from people associated with this institution. Very wonderful uh, social scientist, Brian Abel Smith, flawed, this is his description of the beverage problem, flawed, failed to live up to his promises, and Digby, fellow historian like myself, ambiguous and eclectic, less bedrock than shifting sand. Rodney Lowe, again, wonderful book on the post-war social policy, ineffective and conservative, a flawed blueprint for the eradication of poverty, and Glenister here at the LSE, an unsound foundation on which to build a welfare state. So in a way, academics are now look back, particularly in terms of where we are now, and who, could, and who can anticipate the future. The society beverages are talking about has actually changed. Of course, he said, seven out of eight women would become housewives. Whereas, of course, the whole feminist movement and the change in occupations and uh, our own whole society has changed and these social scientists are now saying we shouldn't be going back to beverage because actually it would not be a good basis on which to build. And so over the time, it's very brief now, uh, what's changed? Well, first of all, flat rate benefits have gone and flat rate contributions from the 60s have had much more earnings related. National assistance, which beverage thought would wither away as... Uh, the, national, uh, the insurance system established itself and covered more and more people. You wouldn't need the safety net. In fact, more and more people applied for national insurance. By the 60s, I think something like three quarters of all the people applying for national assistance were already in receipt of state benefits. So benefits were never really adequate, never kept pace, if you like, with the cost of living expectations. National assistance became stigmatised and so it was changed to supplementary benefit, which in turn became stigmatised. More and more targeting, which in one sense, intellectually, you could justify. Why don't we devote resources to those who really need them, rather than give us all uh, benefits that we don't need? Do, do I need my £10 a year uh, fuel uh, Christmas present? Do I need my £100 fuel allowance? Why don't they take it away and target on those who really need it? Well, the answer is it's more means testing. And of course, costs and demand saw. Again, I think Beveridge thought that a genuine rehabilitation service would reduce the demands uh, rather than increase them. And obviously, didn't anticipate that. So I finished with the picture I started with. And I give you an adaptation in the age of Osborne. And if you remember Osborne's mantra, borrowed from the war, of course, we're all in this together but actually was very differential and in his attack on the welfare budget demonstrates certain value systems. And so in place of uh, what we saw previously, we now have, uh, instead of deserving paupers, we have murderous scrounger scum. And of course the language of today, or recently anyway, was that we're dividing now into strivers and skivers. Those who are getting by and doing their best and those who are living off of uh, welfare. And Beveridge would have been appalled at what Mrs. Thatcher called perverse incentives uh, to stay on welfare. And even uh, whatever you might think of universal benefit in Duncan Smith's uh, programme, one of the main motivations going right back to 1834 was to make work always better 
than idleness, and therefore you'd always be better off in, in welfare. May I leave you with the final sentence of my book? The British welfare state still offers protection against Beveridge's fine giants in ways he would not have anticipated or approved. Thank um, thank you. Thank you very much, um, Derek, for that, uh, that talk. That was, um, that was really fascinating, um, and uh, I learned a huge amount from that, as I'm, as I'm sure all of us here did. Um, we have some time for questions now, so um, if you'd like to ask a question, please put up your hand and we'll send uh, one of the, the microphones over to you. Um, and uh, uh, perhaps if you'd like to uh, say who, who you are as well. Uh, Cornelia Navarre, University of Buckingham. Uh, was the labor, post-war Labour government, in a sense, hostage to beverage? It seems amazing that in the midst of, of the immediate post-war period, with everything, that they should have actually even started on such an ambition. Good point. Yeah, I think that would have been a good case, particularly you think of the financial crisis, the winter, the worst winter for 80 years when the whole economy ground to a halt. It would have been perfectly reasonable, I think, for the Labour government to say we have many, many problems uh, that we need to deal with, but they were true to what they said, that this was a basic element in the reconstruction of society after the, after the war, and therefore they honoured the pledge. Of course, as you know, on the health service, I had very difficult negotiations with the medical profession, Nye Bevan and so on, and uh, it could easily have been deferred, but it wasn't. So I think it is, a, without being at all political, I think it's a tribute to the uh, dedication of the Labour government and its commitment to a better society for ordinary people that they said, notwithstanding the really serious economic problems in this age of austerity, they would nevertheless introduce a welfare system. As it became called, I didn't make the point, perhaps I should have done, the welfare state, and of course, as we know, Beveridge hated that term because he felt it was implied a sort of Santa Claus state in which you were being given presents Whereas what he believed in was a proper actuarial insurance scheme in which you were entitled, as of right, to draw your benefits. Thank you. I think there was a question over there. Thank you. It was very informative, very interesting. Um, you mentioned in the introduction that uh, for you the welfare state starts in the mid-20th century and yeah. that before that there was social service state. Um, I was wondering, was there any influence on the evolution of this social welfare state into um, sorry, in social service state into welfare state in Britain, influence from Germany from the yeah. Bismarckian end of 19th century? Yeah, uh, there's a lovely sentence in one of Beveridge, uh, one of Churchill's um, papers, in which he says, "This is 1910 or about roughly then. We have to have a slice, what he called a slice of Bismarckianism under the whole of our economic and social system." So you're perfectly right. Social insurance was started in Germany, very much as an anti-socialist measure making socialism less likely, and that's one we have to say in the history of social policy, one of the motivations of government is to vo avoid social discontent, so you buy the people off with social welfare. So there was a certain element, and uh, we all remember the famous trip that Lloyd George took to Germany when it was always felt he was looking at battleships, but actually he was studying 
the German social insurance scheme. So you're perfectly right, there was uh, influence from other countries, New Zealand uh, had pensions before Britain did, so there were international examples. Uh, but I think in terms of a coherent, all-purpose social security system covering cradle to the grave, then Britain was the first country to have such a system. Now, there's been an interesting, if you like, development of writing. Lovely, I don't know if you know that series, A Short History of Oxford University Press, little tiny books on practically every topic. There's about 200 titles. Well, there is a title, there is a title on the welfare state. And the author makes a very good point that it, the welfare state with lower capital, not capitals, a welfare state, is a feature of all modern industrial societies. It's a small step from that, which leads me to dissent a little bit, to say, well, there's nothing special, actually, about the British welfare state, because everybody's got one now. So what's special about the British welfare state? And if you remember the uh, typology that um, uh, has been created, three types of welfare states, a socialistic uh, welfare state, a mixed economy welfare state, and a free market welfare state. Britain was in the first category in 1948. By now, Britain's in the middle category. It's a mixed economy because the state expects the individual to play a far greater role and other institutions as well. And so we're no longer, many people would say, in the socialistic camp. And so in a way there was influence uh, from uh, outside leading to social welfare developments. But in turn, the British welfare state has influenced other countries. Uh, and um, I think I'm right in saying, uh, Josie Harris, is, who's here, has written a marvellous definitive biography of Beveridge. I think she puts in one of her footnotes that a copy, a German translation of the Beveridge Report was found in Hitler's bunker. <laughs> so uh, the, the ideas did spread. Uh, and uh, so there was a sort of internationalization of welfare, whether it's a welfare state or a welfare system that happens to sustain a free market capitalist system is a matter of perhaps debate. Uh, you emphasise, or you seem to emphasise, uh, Beveridge's interest uh, in full employment and that he was optimistic that uh, uh, full employment could be created and maintained post-World War II. Um, I, I just wondered uh, what basis, uh, uh, what was his basis for that optimism? Was it based on uh, Keynes' theories? And um, if not, uh, and if that was, was that implicit or explicit? And if not, uh, what was the basis of his I, I think he changed, and I think it's... Uh, it's clear that he did adopt different ideas at different times. And I think when he put Assumption C in, he was very much in his sort of almost, almost socialistic mode of state planning. He believed with, it had happened in wartime. You'd had direction of labor. You'd had wage control. Uh, he believed in extended st state mechanisms, perhaps like a Soviet-type system. You could... Uh, have full employment, which he identifies about 3%. I met Harold Wilson when I was at Bradford. Harold Wilson was our Chancellor, and he granted me an interview at 10 Downing Street to talk about Beveridge, because he'd been Beveridge Research Assistant. And he told me, which I think he's, he then said in a lecture later, he told me that Beveridge never was a Keynesian, 
until he came to write the full employment report. So you could say that when he put assumption C in, it was because at that time, in the light of wartime experience, he had a view that the state could ensure full employment. By the time he wrote the report in 1944, persuaded by people like Caldor, the Keynesians on his little group, he'd become, Mr. Wilson told me this, he'd become a Keynesian. So he was a Keynesian after he published the, uh, the original report. Uh, hi, I'm uh, Jeremy Moore. I used to be uh, Director General for Policy at the Department of Work and Pensions. Um, it's maybe an unfair question to a historian, but I'd, I'd wonder if you'd speculate on what might have happened if Beveridge had been, say, killed in the Blitz in 1940. What shape do you think the, the reform I, might have had a in good, the 40s? Good question, yeah. What if he'd never written the report? Yes, I think there was social planning going. I mean, the health service was being planned. It was clear from the appointment of this committee that people recognised the anomalies and uh, overlapping. I mean, just one, take one example that Beveridge used to cite. It was based upon, and for reasons you know, which we can understand in the Edwardian liberal period, it was a state scheme, but it was administered by approved societies. And so this is part of your freedom. You could choose whichever society you wish to have your contributions. Well, by the time of Beveridge, there were enormous differences in the benefits available. So everybody paid the same in, but got different benefits out. The wealthier societies gave dental uh, benefit, gave op optician benefit. Some of the poorer societies uh, gave uh, the very basic sickness benefit. So I think without Beveridge, there would have been planning for a new system of social services without the anomalies. I mean, I think workman's compensation was already under review. I don't know whether it had been as dramatic... As, as the beverage, but I think people were planning for, I mean, part of this ethos, the, the thing I showed you, the picture post, I mean, that has an article about, we didn't call it the welfare state because people didn't, but it was about welfare and the welfare system. So I think there would have been, as part of post-war planning, uh, and reconstruction was the term used, of course, uh, there would have been a new social insurance scheme of a more consistent and uniform basis, and it's in a... a it would have had to have been influenced by this social solidarity created in wartime. Now, I know historians argue about how long did that survive, and I showed the cartoon of Butskalism, this notion of consensus, which I actually happen to believe in. But many historians say, well, it's all you know, overstated. So if you take evacuation, for instance, where we say all these poor children who were evacuated uh, to middle-class homes, this opened people's eyes to the real poor condition uh, that people were living in. On the other hand, it reinforced the prejudice of many people about child-rearing amongst the working class. So you can overstate the sort of cohesiveness of wartime society and the petty you know, rivalries still existed, but I think it is real. And I think it did underpin many of the planning um, agencies that were looking at the post-war world. And I think it would have been a more socially solidaristic system than the very divided selective system we had in the 1930s. So I think there was first a question at the back and then we'll, we'll come forward. Hello, Sally from um, LSE. I'm, uh, I'm a can you speak up? Here. I can't quite hear you. <laughs> okay. Hello, can you hear me? 
Hello, yes, yeah. yeah. Um, I'm a master's student in the government department, Sally. Uh, my question is, um, in the post-war period when Beveridge report was um, reported, I wonder how, uh, what the impacts uh, of this po- um, these ideas were on in different countries, for example... Um, Say again? Um, I wonder what the impacts of these ideas were on different countries in the post-war uh, war period. Yeah. For instance, I know very generally that um, Japan has imported a lot of welfare system ideas from the European countries, including the UK. Yeah. And then Korea has historically um, uh, got its ideas from Japan. So I know that has been overall um, influence of, um, of this welfare system ideas imported from the European countries to Asian countries as a general idea, but I just wonder what the direct impacts maybe have been from the beverage report to out of maybe Asian countries. Thank you, that's very interesting. Yeah, I think the main impact was in Europe initially. I don't know enough about the Far East to know, but certainly in Australia and New Zealand, very much affected by a beverage type. They didn't take it all on block. I mean, they had different health... I mean, in France, for instance, quite different health in, uh, health service uh, arrangements. But nevertheless, as I said a moment ago, the notion is that all modern societies have welfare systems, and those of, on the left say, well, this is part of a conspiracy to maintain capitalism because you, you ask the state to underpin some of the social casualties of a capitalist system. Um, so I think it did have, I mean, the British welfare state has influenced many other countries, but in different ways reflective of their own values. So a lot of people, I go to the States quite a lot, know quite a lot of people, uh, they're quite uh, envious of our, say, our free health service. And you know all the problems about Obamacare and uh, Mr. Trump's uh, wish to reverse it. So a socialised system of medicine, for instance, has been adopted in some countries but not in others, where a private sector, a sort of private provision, has been more important. And in areas like pensions, we've moved because nobody now... I think Mr Blair was the first Prime Minister to admit that the state pension would never be adequate for your needs and therefore everybody would have to make provision. So the state second pension, the famous stakeholder pension, and the auto-enrolment we're doing at the moment is all about people making extra provision for themselves because it's, it's felt that the state cannot give a blank check, if you like, will not be able to give you adequate benefits in the future. So that part of this relationship between the individual and the state has, of course, changed as our own society has changed. And I think what has happened, as I don't have the specialist knowledge of these other countries, but my impression is that in relation to their cultures and economic systems, they have borrowed and implemented many of the elements that we we would uh, see in the British welfare state itself. Okay, thank you. Um, We've got a number of hands, so if we'll take um, two or three questions this time. I think there's... One over here in the middle. And he then can ask later. And he then... can ask later. Okay. <laughs> so, so if you just pa- if you could pass the mo- the mic just down there. Hi. Um. Thanks for that. My name's Ashling. Um. I first thing's a comment and then it's a question. Um. I do think it was quite interesting. I've been to a couple of events this week, and some of the other um events, the way people 
or academics have talked about things to do with the welfare state has been in quite an abstract, let's have a room of intellectuals at a university talking about all these poor people like none of them could be in the room. Um, and I didn't feel like that at this one, so that's good. Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so the, 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 the thing I wanted to ask um, is how you envisage a welfare state that's fit for purpose right now, because um, I don't know if anyone in the room has had any experiences of um, ESA and tribunals and workability assessments and PIP and how completely soul-destroying and um, dignity-smashing they are, but um, is, is my opinion, both, po both politically and on a personal level, that um, the way the system for benefits especially... W w w is working right now is is com is complete complete completely broken and, and is 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 destroying people's lives basically. Um, so it would be interesting to know what you think. Okay, take two or three. Just take a couple of others. Was there one in, in, in immediately in front? Yes. Um, oh, sorry. Um, I would like to hear a little more about Derek's. Um, views about the Churchill beverage relation, because this is something that over many years I've sort of occasionally dipped into, and I find myself changing my mind all the time about it. And I think it is important to remember that it was Churchill who way back under the mm. New Liberals had brought beverage in as his pet social reformer and had been extremely keen on beverage mm. and his ideas, and they were both very much in sync with each other. And um, that, 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 they don't see much of each other, you know, after the, the First World War. But then in the early 1940s, of course, it is Churchill who gives Beveridge his first um, um, civil service kind of role in the, the process of, 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 of replanning. And they, they, they fall out, really, mm. before the Beveridge report comes along. I'm not quite sure why. I mean, they obviously were terribly different personalities. But, um, um, but even so, um, I, my understanding is that Churchill, and indeed many people who were not entirely in sync with the idea that there would be a wonderful social revolution uh, linked to welfare, um, were nevertheless very glad to have Beveridge there as somebody who was known as a social reformer and generally gave the impression to the public that something was being done on that front. And I think there are... I, I, I mean, I've, I must admit, I've recently been re-looking at some of the earlier... the papers of the earlier part of the, of the, the Beveridge inquiry. And there's no hint then of anything other than well, we've got Beveridge to do this wonderful mm. sort of publicity job for us, so let him get on with it. Um, and it's only when it suddenly seems to be highly likely that there will be a British victory that somehow, not just Churchill, but pe people who are hoping Churchill will be a permanent leader of the Conservative Party, begin to cool off. And... Um, and, and really conservative responses to um, the idea of having um, um, a, a social insurance committee that is looking into all these things are initially very very favourable. And it's only <coughs> after 
Um, well, it's, well the, I mean, the crucial change, of course, is America coming into the war. And it suddenly seems absolutely not just possible, but probable that Britain may be on the winning side and it's not going to be a case of, of all the horrible things that people had thought of in the first 18 months. And that's when Churchill suddenly becomes very hostile to Beveridge, that he suddenly has the frightful feeling that this chap who's tried to get all this publicity for his way of thinking about social welfare is, is, is stealing it from, well, where it ought to be with, which is a, you know, a post-war conservative government. That's, that, and I think, I think there's strong documentary evidence to support that. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Could you just pass? So the the final final question from this this block. Uh, uh, thank you. Uh, I wondered if you could say something about why he remained uh, was and remained so committed not just to insurance and entitlement, but insurance and entitlement based on employment, because one of the most interesting things in an exhibition in the uh, ground floor of the old building is a letter to which he replied from a woman who'd been widowed. 20 years before in the 20s, who had had a sick daughter, who had been unemployed, who basically would have fallen through every conceivable crack, even if the national insurance scheme had been established in 1920. And his reply was basically tough luck. He expressed it more elegantly than I do. But I just wondered why he had that very much employment um, orientated view of entitlement and insurance. Okay. Uh, I'll take them in reverse order. The the question was about the link to employment. I mean, Beveridge had a view that um, the active citizen, the society was a combination of active citizens, and therefore employment, a bit like Gordon Brown said, that he'd created the conditions, he was criticised for what was called On Your Bike Mark II, Uh, by by insisting that those on long-term unemployment benefit took retraining courses and so on. There was almost a social obligation to work. I'm not sure Beveridge saw it as a moral obligation, but I think he saw society as being composed of active, involved citizens. And he accepted that there would be people who, you call it, fell through the crack, but for whom the basic insurance scheme probably was not possible. There's an enormous amount in the beverage papers here and in the papers of the committee about people like were called um, the unmarried wife, people cohabiting, uh, the domestic spinster, person never married, looking after aged parents, the deserted wife. You know, there were a whole range of people. And, of course, in the condition of war, there'd be refugees, displaced persons, and so on. And so beverage felt... Well, you know, I can't cover everything in this basic scheme. So it is for the norm of society as he saw it. As I said in in passing, he believed seven out of eight women would possibly prefer, particularly after childbirth, prefer to be domestic housewives, and therefore it was appropriate in insurance terms that they should be insured through their husbands. Of course, our society is very different. And although just... I always quote this. Mrs. Thatcher, it was said, never did anything for, for feminism. I mean, a woman prime minister who never did anything to advance the cause of what you might call equal opportunities. But the one thing she did do was to allow women to have their own individual tax identity. 
So now a woman's income is not, as I know my dear wife will tell me, a woman's income is not belonged to the husband, but is her own, and she makes her own, um, her own tax return. So I think the, the answer is that employment, it was about a society in which people had a role. There was a moral virtue, perhaps, in work. There was a very basic functional thing that you got your income by, by working. But I think Beveridge thought it was part of a cohesive society, that people should have a stake in that society. Josie's question is very interesting. Um, I hadn't quite put it in quite so precise terms. It seemed to me that um, you probably... There's a good point about America coming to the war might have changed attitudes. My sense is, as I said about that little squiggle on the draft report that he didn't want to give Beveridge credit. I think he did feel affronted that Beveridge had used the report. I take your point. There was a feeling Beveridge was not known widely in public, but he was known in insurance, employment, friendly society, and all that. They knew about him. He was an expert, and so I entirely agree. The government was quite happy to have Beveridge in charge of post-war planning. I think when he went beyond, maybe it was when... They changed the rule. It was debated at Cabinet, as I recall, whether he should sign the report personally. But that was not till I think, May. Um, uh, but certainly the fact that it was now going to be a personal report would mean that government was not necessarily committed, as it showed it wasn't committed, didn't want to be committed. I put quite a big stress on the propriety side, also, I think the personal thing, I, you know, I mean, but someone who's won the war for you has a, a degree of legitimate egoism that he's the best man to win the war. And certainly, I think everyone agrees that particularly in the summer of 1940, as these recent films have shown, uh, he was absolutely adamant there'd be no deal. We would fight on and we would not be defeated. And uh, I think anyone, and even Beveridge, accepted that, that Churchill was the best man uh, to, to lead the, the, uh, the war efforts. And I do think there was something about Beveridge as a personality that offended um, uh, Churchill. And you're perfectly right, Joseph, they fell totally apart. I mean, you will have seen them as I have, the very sad letters here in the archive of when he writes to Churchill saying, can you spare me 15 minutes of your time and we'll talk about the magic of averages as we did before the First, First World War? Got no response at all. Um, and so you're right, there was a personal antipathy that had a policy dimension in terms of committing the government, which he thought in a perhaps improper way. And he said himself... That he wanted a plan for war. And whole, he talked about a great book of policies. This was afterwards, 43. There would be a book of policies, of which the white paper chase is an example. They would plan for the post-war world, but they didn't want to be bounced by beverage. The question about have we got a broken welfare state, I think, well, that would be a very big topic. I've always said historians are no better at predicting the future than anybody else. All I would say is that the universal credit, which I know has had some practical problems, is an attempt to simplify uh, benefits. So all these six or seven benefits brought into one scheme. Obviously, it's had this 
problem about delay before you can apply and so on, which I think is being addressed. I think ministers have been, are sensitive to the idea that people should be treated with dignity, but if you have a welfare state, as we now have, based almost exclusively, I shouldn't say that, largely based on selective means-tested benefits, then you have to have, I'm afraid, a rigorous means-testing scheme that proves you are entitled to the benefit you're claiming. And that has its problems psychologically, practically, and in terms of you, your, the way you feel vis-a-vis the state as a supplicant, whereas this is why the beverage scheme, it's the final thing I'll say, the beverage scheme had this question of entitlement. You were not a supplicant. You earned your benefits as of right. It was an income you were entitled to during interruptions of earnings. And the more we've gone away, for reasons I understand, the more we've gone away from universal, either universal benefits on the one hand, like child allowances as they were, uh, and um, things that everyone gets where the take-up rate is 100%, and selective benefits where the take-up rate is lower. And, of course, people do feel, uh, uh, some people feel anyway, there is this idea that people are exploiting welfare, and there's another idea that people don't claim welfare because they feel humiliated by having to apply. Final thought. Well, thank, (laughs) thank you very much, Derek. I'm afraid we've run out of time, so join me in thanking Derek.